I'm Maureen Bellatori, and this is Spilled Salt, a podcast on the thrills and spills from the food, beverage, and agriculture industries. Today's guest is Nova Katamatri. She is a consulting winemaker and a master of wine. She's based in the Finger Lakes, but she's known as a flying winemaker because she makes wine all over the United States. Nova's experience throughout her career has gone from learning hobby winemaking to working with very large global corporations. And today she talks about those experiences as well as some nuggets on the current state of the industry and where the entire wine industry is going for the future. Some of her predictions there. Enjoy the conversation. Hey Nova, how are you? Good. How are you, Maureen? Good. Thanks so much for joining today. Um, I wanted to start with, it is November 9th today, and I know you just finished Harvest, and I know what that means a little bit. You know what that means a lot. And let's start there for you to tell everybody a little bit about what harvest season means. Sure. So, you know, grape harvest is kind of the culmination of all the hard work we've done in the vineyard throughout the whole year. And so it's, it's mother nature's kind of timing. And so you're all in hundred percent, um, seven days a week, a lot of times, mm -hmm. you know, and so there was a period between like end of September and like last weekend where I did not get a day off, you know, so it's just, you just go, go, go. And the way I do things, I both harvest both here in the East coast and on the West coast. And so I spend two to three days a week in Napa, California, and then the rest of the time here. And so I'm going back and forth all the time. And it's just, it's just insane. And I love it, but it's, it's exhausting. So coming out of harvest now, it's really time to kind of reflect and go, okay, where is everything? What are we doing? I'm, I'm starting to, my brain's starting to engage on things not related to harvesting grapes and, and fermenting wines and, you know, going, oh, shoot, now here's all the to-do lists that I've been ignoring for the last two months that, that have to get done, but weren't like uber critical time yeah. sensitive like the grapes were. Right. And what's the next step, right? So you got the grapes off the plant, you got them into the tanks, they're fermenting. How long do they typically sit there? Does that depend? It depends. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, the reds are all done um, mm. at this point. They're all pressed off. And so that's kind of a big sigh of relief. Everything's going through ML on the red side right now. So that's malolactic fermentation, which changes like the more tart malic acid, which is acid of apples to mm -hmm. more soft lactic acid, which is more of a milk acid. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see like the, the textural changes that would happen with that. Then the whites, we've still got a couple of Rieslings going through fermentation since those are more later ripening, but all of our early stuff is all done. Um, the Chardonnay is all done. It's going through its ML, you know, so it's, it's just kind of getting, we call it getting things put to bed, so to speak, you know, like once, once they're all done and everything's sulfured, that's when you really can go, okay, now we're, yeah. we're at a, a good point. And at that point, I always say 85% of winemaking is done in like the first two weeks of when you, yeah. and then the rest of the time is just not screwing up what you just did. <laughs> right. <laughs> Love that. Um, so I, I wanted to start there because I know that that's been such a huge part of your life for the last month or, or handful of weeks. Uh, but I want to back up and kind of have you talk a little bit about your history. You know, I know I've seen you call yourself or other people call you the flying winemaker. You reference that, that you work on the West Coast mm -hmm. and the East Coast. But talk about your background a little bit. Sure. So this was my 20th harvest. So that was kind of a big milestone for me. Um, and, you know, having been doing this as long as I have now, I've 
I've been able to be fortunate enough to work in a lot of different areas and a lot of different wineries, many different winemakers, lots of different varieties. And, um, and so, you know, it's this, my, what I'm doing now as a consulting winemaker and also as an owner of my own wine company, um, really is a culmination of all those years of experience together. And I, the flying winemaker term is just a term for a winemaker that flies around the world and makes wine in multiple places, which is definitely what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in multiple countries at this point, but just, you know, bi-coastal is, is kind of what I'm, what I'm working on. Um, so I have clients here in New York, I have a client in Ohio and I have uh, clients out in California and in Napa. And so, um, yeah, that's, I, I just spend my time kind of managing all the different, um, aspects of that. Talk about keeping a lot of balls in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have two kids. So that's, that's another, another thing that man is managed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, it's busy. It's never a dull mm-hmm. moment. Yes. And what brought you to wine and winemaking? Where did your interest in that start? Sure. So I did not grow up in a wine drinking family. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in the Southeast back when like wine was the devil and, you know, any sort of alcohol really. Mm-hmm. And um, you, now that's definitely changed in the Southeast. Like the perception of wine has been a much more positive thing over the last 10, 15 years. Um but uh, yeah, so I came into it when I started dating my husband, whose family's mm-hmm. Italian, and I started having dinners with their family, and they, you know, had always had wine at the table, and that was just part of part of a meal, and and so that's what really introduced me to it. And then Brian said one day when we were in college, "Oh, we should start a vineyard." My family in Italy did it; it can't be that hard. And it turns <laughs> out that like his family vineyard, his you know, it's a very extended family in Sicily. Uh, had like four rows in their backyard. So not necessarily like a massive vineyard, but enough to make some home wine. Um, but he was thinking, oh yeah, if they did it in their backyard, that can't be that hard. And so I said, well, let me look into how hard it actually would be. And that's how I how I ended up getting into the uh, wine industry is wow. my, my major is actually viticulture, which is great growing. Yeah, that's fascinating. My I married an Italian as well. Um, and so my father-in-law also makes his own Mm -hmm. homemaking wine and, you know, it's, it is a big generational thing for them to pass down generation to generation. Um, we also work with Billsboro winery also in the Finger Lakes here and Mm -hmm. Vinny, that was his story too. He learned winemaking from his grandfather and wanted Mm -hmm. to, you know, make that his job. And so he leaned into it and, and now does it full time, but your you're doing it to a whole other degree because you're not just making wine as a hobbyist, certainly vastly beyond that, but you're also doing it for your own vineyards as well as other wineries around the country. And then maybe someday internationally too. How do you keep, like, how do you balance all of that? How do you manage a vineyard on the other side of the country? Well, the nice thing about my client in Napa is they've got an amazing vineyard manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's really the team and it's having the mm-hmm. team, you know, because it's never just me. Like if, if people see that they, they think it's just me, but it's never just me. Let me just right. clarify that. Um, so having the right team around you is so, so critical because I would absolutely fall flat on my face if I didn't have amazing, strong teams on both coasts to work with. And one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is I need to hire an assistant winemaker for my client in Ohio. And so it's like, again, having that team that's the people on the ground that mm-hmm. can really make things happen. You know, clearly I'm, I'm not always pulling hoses anymore. I mean, I've done my share of it this harvest, that's for sure. 
but um, that's not my my role 24-7 anymore. And so I need to make sure that I have people around me that are able to do the things that need to be done while mm-hmm. I'm not there. And so mm-hmm. that's that's been huge. Mm-hmm. And how does your work now differ from, I know you spent some time at Constellation Brands. How does your your day-to-day differ now from your time there? Oh, it, it could not be more different. Like the... <laughs> So my time with Constellation, for the most part, every day, you know, I mean, during harvest was a little bit different. Like I'd go walking the vineyards in the morning and be in the office in the afternoon. But for the most part, it was a desk job. And and mm-hmm. it was very much like, oh, answer emails, attend meetings, you know, these types of things. Whereas now I am all over the place that I'm, you know, out at wineries and out in the vineyards. And I very rarely actually have time to sit down behind my computer and go through emails. I might have maybe three or four hours a week that I solely focus spending on emails where that Mm -hmm. used to be like three or four hours a day, you Mm -hmm. know? And, um, and so now I feel like I'm much more engaged in the physical winemaking process and Mm -hmm. and know what's going on and, and everywhere, you know, and, and able to get my hands dirty a little bit more, which I really, really love. Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite parts of the work that you're doing now, as opposed to getting your hands dirty? Yeah. So, I mean, I love, um, there's so many aspects of what I do that I love. It's, it's hard to, hard to pick, but you know, I'm managing vineyards now and that has been really, really rewarding because that was what I ultimately got me into this industry is the, mm. the process of growing a grapevine. And so being able to harvest our first fruit from vineyards that I've managed this year, that was a huge milestone and, and very like full circle from some, some aspects and where so, yeah. you were, you were involved in getting the plant in the ground and this was your first year harvesting. Is that what you no, mean? Not in the, not in the ground. So we, we took mm-hmm. over a vineyard, um, two vineyards actually this year, one for a client of mine and one that we leased for a company. Mm-hmm. And I managed both of those vineyards. And so again, we have a great vineyard team and I just kind of go out there and say, okay, this is what we need to do today. And let's, you know, that, you know, and, um, but it was fruit that I called the shots on farming And then I got to make wine from it. And that is something I've never done before, which was so rewarding. And then, um, yeah, the other things that I love, you know, I love working with my clients. I love seeing their, because pretty much all of my clients at this point are new to world brands. None of them are selling wine at this point. Mm. We're getting, you know, things are in the bottle, things are in the tank, they're getting ready. We're getting the marketing plans together, you know, and so they're all like brand new brands. And so next year is going to be such a huge year because all of these brands are now going to be hitting the market. Yeah. And so that's super exciting to see things come to fruition over, you know, so many years of work because, mm-hmm. you know, once you see a wine brand hit a shelf, there's like at least two years of work that's been do- happening prior to that wine hitting that shelf. And so being able to see these things come to life is really exciting. And then one of my clients in Napa, um, we're planting his vineyard next year. And I got to pick all the clones for that and all the rootstocks. And it's a new vineyard in Napa County, which like you've never, that doesn't mm. happen. Wow. Yeah. So being able to be a part of um, that, that history of, of this is the virgin planting of this piece of ground and, and let's see what it does is really cool. Yeah. We're really similar in that way because we, one of the reasons why we love working with brands that are in agriculture is because of that whole, you can decide what goes in the ground and how mm-hmm. you plant it and how you harvest it 
and then what comes next? And so for us, you know, a lot of the agricultural brands that we're working with, they're doing some sort of value added processing that maybe it turns into a consumer packaged good that's available on the shelf at a retail store. Mm -hmm. And to be able to literally walk in there and pick it up off the shelf and bring it home and bring it back to the office and show the team is a really cool, indescribable experience. Yeah. It's a cool feeling. Yeah. Yeah, That's awesome. Um, so I know that you are the first female master of wine, correct? First female winemaker in the U.S. Okay. Wine. Tell me about that experience. What was that like to Ooh, get that? That was a long slog of, of brutal uh, work. Um, so it took me eight years. Um, mm-hmm. There are at the moment, I think about 420 masters of wine in the world. We just inducted four new ones last week, so I'm not 100% sure where we are numbers-wise now, but you know, that's still a relatively small number of people. Yeah, 420 in the world, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and so um, you know, there, there are, it's roughly, I think, 45% women and 55% men, so it's actually a pretty nice split between women and men, but because it has been so um, seen as like a trade like uh, if you're in the sales or, or world, mm-hmm. that that's the certification you would get. So there are very few actual production people that go mm-hmm. for the master of wine, which is how I ended up being um, the first female winemaker in the U.S. to get it. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. And I've heard this before about that there's not a lot of women leaders in wine, in the wine industry as mm-hmm. a whole. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would say that's true. Um, I would say it's slowly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I see more and more women going into winemaking and being seen as as being capable in production roles, and especially with the larger corporations because they've put such a focus on you know promoting equality and equity, um, and and find and really embracing diverse leaders and diverse voices. So I, I see the larger corporations changing faster than the smaller family owned companies, mm-hmm. but it also depends on the region because here in the Finger Lakes, I think we have a disproportionately higher percentage of women working in, in as owners or head winemakers uh, than they do in California. Hmm. Um, not that I have numbers to back that up, but I think if you looked at it as a whole, I think we're we're a relatively newer region, even though mm. you know we've been growing wine since the 1800s. But you know, from post prohibition, we're a relatively new region, and and right. I think we we don't have as many of the uh, old standby. Oh, you have to have a guy in charge. You know, thoughts as mm-hmm. maybe the California is fighting with. You know, so yeah, I think there's definitely change, mm-hmm. but you don't see a lot of women at the very very top. You know, mm-hmm. and the ones that are like, you think about Barbara Bank with with uh, Jackson family, like she's you know definitely a mm-hmm. a strong woman leader, and you know there's definitely others that have, are running you know wine companies, but like the the big one, the big companies are mostly still men. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of, it just reminds me, I just recently went to go see the Barbie movie with my daughter and, you know, she walks into the big boardroom that's mm-hmm. full of men in suits. And she mm-hmm. says, where's the CEO? I want to meet her, mm-hmm. you know, and then she's going down the line and down the line looking for any woman in leadership at Mattel, which I thought was just kind of, you know, anecdotally, like a really interesting way for Mattel to poke fun at themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and say, we, we recognize this, but what it also comes down to is action. And so it's, it's 
while it may be counterintuitive, I think it's great to hear that the corporations are moving first, right? Because they have the ability to, you know, make those changes and they can understand the importance of making sure that there's a diverse team in charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other like industry elements that you've seen change in your career of winemaking? Industry elements. Wow. Um, well, I think just here in the Finger Lakes over the 20 years, I mean, I've been, my first harvest here in the Finger Lakes was in 04. Mm-hmm. So I've been around this, this industry for quite a while now, and it is dramatically different now than it mm. was back in 04. Like the quality of wine overall as a region has really elevated. Um, we're more well known uh, mm-hmm. from an international perspective now as a, as a quality wine region. And I just feel like that's, there's just been so many people across the years that have worked so hard and kept kind of beating the drum and beating the drum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm one of those people now beating the drum as well, you know, and, and it's making sure that the world understands Mm -hmm. that there there's good wine to be made here. Um, uh, you know, I do see a lot more embrace of diverse people in the industry. And, and that's, that's been a relatively recent change. Um, and, it, I think it's been really, really good because we need um, different backgrounds and different thoughts of point of view and different ways to see things of how we sell to consumers because, you know, not every consumer looks like us. Not every consumer looks like, you mm-hmm. know, the, the white guy in the boardroom, you know, mm-hmm. and right. so we need to have those diverse opinions so that we know how to really reach consumers where they're at and how, mm-hmm. how we can best serve their needs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Couldn't agree more. What do you think are some of the changes that are coming down the pipeline in terms of what do you see continuing to happen in the future mm-hmm. of the wine industry, either just in the Finger Lakes or in the industry as a whole? Well, I think climate change is something we're all having to reckon with, and it's mm-hmm. happening now. Like, you yeah. know, everybody kind of thinks of climate change as something that's going to happen in the future. <laughs> yeah. Or we're going to be impacted by it in the future at some point. But if you're in agriculture, you know it's happening right now. Right. And we're having to make changes of how we farm and adapt, especially in California. You know, we're doing a lot of work with canopy management and things like that so that the fruit can stay protected from the sun when it gets really hot. Uh, your you know, wildfires are an issue. You know, so, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that have happened in the last five to 10 years that are really being driven by this change in our climate that we're having to adapt to quite quickly as an mm-hmm. agricultural community. And that's globally. Um, yeah, the industry is having to grapple with that. Like the flooding in Germany was just tragic, you know, mm-hmm. and the, all these major storms that are hitting France and the hail in Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like every single wine region, there's something there, yeah. like, it's not all the same problem, but it's right. something being driven to an extreme that yeah. we're now having to adapt to. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, that's the biggest, the biggest issue there. Um, I think, you know, something that is a very interesting development in the industry right now is everybody's going, Oh, people are, people are drinking less wine. People are drinking less wine. You know, there's yeah. this panic about people drinking less wine. But if you really look at the data and you look at the breakdown of where, what part of the industry is shrinking and what part of the industry is growing, what's shrinking is the stuff at the low end, you know, anything less than $11 a bottle. Yeah. People are not drinking that. You know why? Cause it just doesn't taste good. There are <laughs> You know, and I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing. You know, it's like if you're going to put something in your mouth and put something in your body 
have it be a pleasant, positive experience, you know, yeah. and you know, what people aren't doing is they are looking at all of their options for beverages, be it uh, wine, be it craft beer, be it spirits, be it mm -hmm. non-alcoholic options. And they're, they're making choices and they're saying, I want to have a great experience. And what is going to be that experience tonight? And I think we, instead of being panicked about this, we need to really embrace this movement towards giving consumers what they want. And, and the good news is, is they're buying them at higher price points. Are they buying yeah. the same volume? No, but mm. the value where, like where the, the market is, is much at a higher price point than it was 10 years ago. And I think there's a lot of panic around the fact that people are drinking less, but they are drinking better. And so I don't necessarily see that necessarily as a bad thing. Now, if you're a great grower in the Central Valley of California, yeah, that might be a major problem for you. Because um, they're often growing the grapes for yeah. the lower value wine. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's huge competition in that area for almonds, for pistachios. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to take some adaptation. And, but there are whole companies that have based their model on I'm going to, you know, we're going to be doing the box wine at, at the mm -hmm. entry level price points. And those are the people that are super scared right now because they've mm -hmm. been doing the volume, but that's also the part of the market that's shrinking. And so I see it as a real fundamental shift in how customers are approaching wine and consuming mm -hmm. wine, I don't necessarily see it that as a bad thing, you know, mm -hmm. because I, I've always been one to, to um, encourage moderation. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'd rather have one really amazing glass of wine every two weeks than of just mediocre one every night. Mm -hmm. And that's always just been my philosophy. And so I'm kind of seeing more and more people adapting yeah. to that same same thought process. Yeah. And I love that perspective. And I think that that's consistent with a lot of different air, you know, aspects of food and beverage, right? Mm -hmm. We'd work with a lot of premium artisanal brands that mm -hmm. have something special and it's at a higher price point. Yeah. And you know, you can, you can be there, but you have to have a strategy that aligns with that concept that you're talking about yes. of, you're not going to sell as much, which has always been the case, right? You know, right. you either have a volume play or you have a, a premium play, mm -hmm. you know, and they're not the same and how much you sell is, is never going to be consistent either. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a, a great perspective to have on the winery industry as a whole, the wine industry as a whole. But I think it's also could be extrapolated to many aspects of food and beverage. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, customers have more choices now than they, ever have. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really exciting time to mm -hmm. be a customer in, in the food and bed space, you know, because you have so many things that you could explore and that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing too, to your point about mentioning that if those farmers in the center of Valley are not able to have an outlet for their product any longer, right. That there, there are other things that could be grown on that land. You know, those pivots are never easy decisions, but that's one of the reasons again, why I love agriculture, right? Mm -hmm. Is because the possibilities are endless. You can mm -hmm. farm a different way. You can farm a different thing. And again, very easy for me to say, I'm not talking about personally ripping out a bunch of vineyards in my backyard, you know, but as a whole, that farmland is highly valuable for a lot of different purposes. Yeah. Tell me a story um, about one of your favorite 
experiences from the industry just in your career like something that happened or someone that you worked with or something that you got to have a hand in um creating that was a really special moment for you well i mean i think one of the really special moments for me that had nothing to do with me actually as a winemaker but had to do with me studying for the master of wine and mm -hmm. The first year I was in the master wine program, they always do a, what they do is call as a stage one Bordeaux trip. And you have to apply to be accepted onto it. And then you have to get, you pay to pay for your plane ticket to get to Bordeaux. And then the, the Chateau in Bordeaux sponsor it and they cover mm -hmm. everything else. Um, so I applied to be on this trip and I got on it, flew to Bordeaux and um it was 30 30 something people on on the bus and we were going around to all these different like we hit probably four chateau per day it was wow. maybe a, maybe a four or four or five day long trip but the last chateau we hit was chateau margot mm -hmm. and this was in 2009 it was early 2009 because they were just getting ready to do the 08 on premier and paul pontalier who's who's since passed um was our tour guide and he walked us all around the cellar and I ended up getting able to sit next to him at dinner that night. And mm -hmm. I, I have just a notebook that I had with me and there's like three, four pages of just quotes from Paul Pantalier in, in that notebook from, from that trip. And one of the things he said, which is very poignant now that he's gone is that he says, I'm making wines that will outlive me. I'm, I'm making wines that will be, here far beyond my time on earth and and people will still be enjoying them long after i'm gone and and he said and that's that's my immortality and as a winemaker mm. like that really struck home to me is like that's that's what we that's our legacy that's what we're yeah that was the word that came to mind for me too when you were talking about that yeah and is that you know i want to make sure that the wines that i'm making are worthy of that mm. you know i don't want people to look at my wines and you know, if somebody keeps something for 40 years or they're 50 years, like I want to make sure that it, they can see what, what it, what it was, even if it's not fully at the same level, or maybe it is beautiful in 40, 50 years, you know, yeah. so I, I try to think about not so much, you know, cause what, you know, most wine is drunk within, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours of, of buying it, but mm -hmm. not all of it is. And, and so right. those, those ones that get, you know, stashed in a cellar somewhere and somebody mm -hmm. picks up and they go, oh, what was this? You know, and, and I, I want to want to think that, you know, after I'm I've left the industry, after I'm no, no longer around the world, that that my wines will still be around and people will still be enjoying them. Yeah. And that aligns with that that experience that you're talking about creating, too, and the industry moving more toward premium experiences that people can really enjoy that moment with their food and beverage and the people and the memories that all surround that. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, the concept of it's not many, but it's, you know, one special thing. Yes. And so that, that legacy bottle that mm -hmm. will outlive you is, you know, going to be something that somebody pulls off the shelf one day and has that same kind of shared experience, mm -hmm. even though you're, you'll be in totally different times. That's what Absolutely. a great concept. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay, last question for you. What's next for you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, I'm, go I'm going away this weekend. I'm going on a vacation. I'm not going to work. Good for you. Weekend, so I'm very excited. Well deserved. Yep. Um, yeah, what's next? 
you know, I ask myself that a lot because I'm, I'm been about two years, almost two years in this new iteration of my life with not working full time for somebody else. Um, I'm loving it, but there's always the kind of where, where's the, where are the brands going? Where, where's the company going? Um, our company's growing, you know, quickly. And it's always a, a, a struggle and a, a good problem to have, but also a struggle to go, how do you manage the growth in a smart way, but take advantage of the opportunities, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I don't know really what's, what's next because I I've been thinking about that a lot and, and trying to develop that. Okay. Where do we want to be, you know, getting mm-hmm. ready to come into, um, 2024 planning mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, sales planning and, and visioning and all of that. And I have a, a vision board that I drew out, you know, year and a half ago or so for like where we want to be in like 10 years. Yeah. But where, where we are now versus where we're going to be in like two years from now, like that's yeah. always, that's always the kind of the murky gray area. You've got the mm-hmm. long-term goals and the immediate goals, but that right. like midterm goal thing is always a little bit challenging to figure yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Same is true for me. I would imagine too, that now that you're through harvest, you know, you're through the the busiest time of the year and you can kind of take a step back. You can take, you know, your vacation and rest a little bit, right. Mm -hmm. Include some time for reflection. That's the time where some of the brilliance and visioning all starts to come together because you have time to give space to your mind, to be open to thinking in that way, instead of, I got to, do this with the grapes and I got to do this with the tanks and I got to yeah. do these with the crates and, you know, make sure all these people are, are, you know, have what they need from me and, and all mm-hmm. of those things. So I'm excited for you and the, the opportunity that is ahead of you with continuing the, the great trajectory of your career that you've been on. So thank you. Yeah. I always, I always take the time during the winter to write. I write a lot mm-hmm. during the winter and I have been working on a book. And my goal is to finish the book this winter. And, and so that's, that's the goal. Um, so, so yeah, we'll, we'll see where that goes. And the book is about, it's about overcoming failure and, and mm-hmm. life lessons that have led me to, to being able to be gritty and strong and being able to, to get through things that are hard mm-hmm. basically. And, and I, I've had a lot of people ask me, especially through the MW program, because I failed that exam so many times. That oh, was, failed it five times and, and then they kicked me out and then I had to come back and pass it the sixth time. Um, and so the resilience that was required to get through that, a lot of people have asked me, like, how did, how did you do and where did you find the gumption and all that? And so I started writing the book for those people that, yeah. and cause it's not an easy answer. It's a, like, mm-hmm. well, I've been through this my whole life and he's, these are the things I've learned. And this is what kind of gave me that that background to be able to keep going. And, and so that's, I, I feel like that book needs to be out there. I love it. Well, once you're, you've got that done or you're ready to, you know, nearly finish it up and start getting it out into the world, we'll have you back on the podcast and you can tease a little bit more about that because it sounds fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time today, Nova. Really great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Spilled Salt. I'm Maureen Balatori. For more information about the podcast, visit www.29designstudio.com. If you have questions for me, you can submit them through the contact form on the website. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode.